Well, good morning, church. My name is Tanner. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here at Antioch. And over the past couple weeks, several weeks, I've had the joy of bringing you God's Word, preaching from 2 Corinthians on sort of Paul's paradoxical statements on what, what it is to live the Christian life. Paradoxical meaning like they're sort of counterintuitive. They don't really make sense. So the, the first one, a couple weeks ago, we were in 2 Corinthians 3, and we looked at what it means to live the uh, unimpressive but authentic life with Jesus. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at what it means to be blessed to be a blessing and how often those blessings that, that God gives to us, that he blesses us with, are often not the way we expect them, but they're the way that he uses in us for us to bless others. And since as Christ's death works in us, life is also working in us and through us. Remember that? So this morning, we're going we're gonna to sort of tie a bow on, this, on these thoughts and look at Paul's final sort of statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul gets to this weird conclusion at the end, and he says, I am content with weakness. In other words, Paul says, I welcome weakness. And we're going to look today at what exactly he means by that, because whatever is in your mind when you think of welcoming weakness is probably not what was in Paul's mind. Um, Paul is going to sort of shape, we want Paul, God through the, Paul, to shape our understanding of what it means to welcome weakness. I'll say at the beginning, this, this passage was really heavy for me this week, and sort of walking around in it, um, and my tone might just be a little bit heavier in places, but, but lean in, let's Let's sit at God's feet. Let's learn what it means to, for the Christian to be content with weakness, to welcome weakness. If you have your Bible, let's open them to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, that's on page 970. The title this morning is, We Welcome Weakness. And our main point is this, in Christ we can joyfully welcome weakness. Weakness, And then I want to outline it in these two points. Point one, our strengths are not sufficient from verses one through six. Point two, God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. Again, we're on 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses one through 10. With that said, if you're able, please stand and honor the reading of God's word. If you are unable to stand, we ask that you take a posture of reverence in your heart. Church, hear the word of the Lord. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ Jesus who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And this man, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, the Lord has spoken to us, and let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, early in my Christian walk, I was in college, and the Lord did an amazing miraculous work in my life, bringing me out of sin and into life with Christ. And as many of you might have experienced in your early days following Jesus, it was like you got a steroid shot full of grace. The Bible was was easy to remember. You had a zeal for sharing the gospel with others. You were involved in church and you were laboring sacrificially for the kingdom, and life was joyful and bubbly, and everything was going well. And in my life, that was certainly true. The Lord was, was blessing His ministry through the things that, that He had allowed me to do. And I thought, it's just going to keep getting better from here. It's gonna, it's, it can only go up. And so I did what most people would do in that situation, or have done, I enrolled in seminary, and we moved to Louisville, and I thought, it's going to be great, but it wasn't. Not, it's not the seminary's fault, it's not Louisville's fault, it's just the reality of walking with Jesus that, some, that I experienced a time where I should have been flourishing, but I was frustrated and angry. Life was difficult. Reading my Bible was difficult. I was apathetic in areas that I hadn't experienced before, and I was confused and questioning, and I felt weak. And I've got journal entries from not very long ago that say things like, I think my best days as a Christian are behind me. The Lord must be really disappointed in me. I feel like I'm wasting my calling. And again, I hope that's not just my reality, but but some of you might have experienced or expressed those things also. At one point in time, you were on a spiritual mountaintop. Walking with Jesus was easy. You felt close to him. You were full of joy. But these days, not so much. These days, you might think, my best days as a Christian are behind me. It was fun while it lasted. God must be really disappointed with me. He's probably waiting for me to get my act back together. And if that's you this morning, just know that in God's word, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, there's a, there's a message, a reward for you if, you're bring, if you bring that with you. So let's look at our, our first point is this. Our strengths are not sufficient. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So a little bit of context. 
In 2 Corinthians, one of Paul's main reasons for writing is to address this critique of him that, that his apostolic ministry is not sufficient. That he, Paul has to defend himself and establish that his ministry is authentic, it's from the Lord, it's producing the fruit that it needs to produce. And these false apostles in the church at Corinth are claiming Paul's ministry is weak, it doesn't produce any fruit, you shouldn't listen to him, he's a fool. And we've put this on the screen before, but here are some of the claims that these false super apostles are making or that Paul says about these super apostles. He says that they are peddlers of God's word. They charge a preaching fee. They're men of insincerity. They're they're inauthentic. They're, They're fake. They present a superior spirituality that's not true or authentic about them. They trust in their credentials. They think because they have some sort of backing that they're that they're, they can trust in. They're those, those who trust in their own sufficiency. They're those who embrace deceitful and underhanded ways. Worst of all, they preach another Jesus and a different gospel, and Paul calls them servants of Satan. Which is interesting. They also, like I said before, they trust in their superior spirituality. And one of the ways that they're boasting in is that they receive visions and revelations from the Lord that God is using in their ministry. And so Paul, in chapter 11, gets into this lengthy discussion on really why, why he's credible. And he boasts in his credentials. And he boasts in the things that he's been able to do. And he boasts in his sufferings on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 12, he gets to this point where he's going to boast in a revelation and vision that no one else can claim. He writes, I'll go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. So another important thing we need to note is that Paul doesn't seem to think that this boasting of the vision is going to do any any good for anybody. There's nothing really to be gained in this, but he'll play the game. He'll boast too. If the false apostles have visions, Paul's got a better vision. And so we need to kind of set out the forefront, however impressive this vision is, there's something else that's more impressive. There's something else that's more beneficial for us to know. So what does he say? How does he describe his vision? Verse two, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Which is kind of awkward, because up to this point, we've got the Apostle Paul writing in the first person. I did this. This happened to me. This is my experience. And then we get to verse 2, and he says, I know a man that this happened to. We learn later in verse 6, or 5 and 6, that it's Paul. So why does he begin with this awkward third person? He wants to provide some some clues on how we should think about his story. So here's what I mean. Paul saying, I know a man, is a way of him making this vision accessible to anyone who is in Christ. If the false super apostles were having visions and revelations and saying, We have visions and revelations. We're better than you. 
Paul is saying, I've had a vision, revelation that can happen to anybody. It doesn't make me any better than anyone else. It didn't come to me because I was an apostle. It didn't come to me because of who I am. It came to me because I am in Christ. It doesn't make me any superior to anyone else. And so he's establishing a difference between him and these false apostles. But what do we know about the vision? Paul says that sometime about 14 years ago, he was caught up, snatched up. It happened suddenly. It happened unexpectedly. And he was in the third heaven, paradise. So most scholars are pretty unified that third heaven, paradise, same place. And that this is the ideal of the complete heaven. He was in the heaven of heavens. He was in the holy of holies, the very place where God's presence was complete and full. The throne room. The weight of glory. And did Paul imagine this trip or did he actually go? He doesn't know. He doesn't know whether in the body or out of the body. He has no idea. Whatever, whatever this was, was so outside of Paul's experience that he has no idea if he actually went there physically or if he had imagined it in a dream. But it, was, it felt real, but he doesn't. He doesn't know, which is interesting because you need to know that Paul's, Paul is used to receiving visions and revelations from the Lord. In the book of Acts, Paul records there are five revelations and visions that Paul experiences that he knows well sure that they happen to him and he communicates them with others. This is something different. This is something unexpected, something sudden, something he never encountered before. And what happened in this revelation? What can, what can Paul tell us? He went to the third heaven. He was snatched up. Surely he's got a message from the Lord for us. What did he hear? We don't know. He can't tell us. He can't tell us for two reasons. One, he heard, he heard things that cannot be told. So, on one sense, he doesn't know how to communicate the vision. He doesn't know, he doesn't have the right categories for speaking about this vision. It would be as if we traveled back in time and had to communicate to a primitive culture how an iPhone works. Could you do that? Like, where do you, where do you begin? Okay, there's, there's a rectangle. And, and, wait, you don't know what a rectangle is. Okay. Um, we carry it in our pants. You don't know what pants are. Right? And then you gotta like actually explain how the technology works. We just, the chasm between what we know and what a primitive culture might know about an iPhone is so large that we lack the language to communicate it. They lack the language to receive it. We just don't know how to talk about it. Or even me asking Pastor Jason to explain how a Bitcoin works for like the hundredth time. I don't have the mental capacity to understand that. So there's a chasm between the understanding. Second, there seems to be a sense in which Paul is forbidden from communicating this vision. We know this two ways. One, he apparently kept this to himself for 14 years. He never kept any other visions to himself that we know of. This one, he seemed to be willing to take it to his grave 
except the circumstances of the Corinthian church prompted him to mention this vision. He's seen other visions that he talked about, but this one he kept, he kept secret. So we can summarize this to say that, one, this is a truly spectacular experience. It's unique. There are not many instances in Scripture where someone is caught up to the third heaven, sees amazing things, the splendor of God, the weight of glory, and can't communicate it. Like, what did he see that was so spectacular that God was like, hey, keep this one to yourself? That, or, hey, I don't have words to talk about it. And so Paul is being humble, and he's like, he says, you know, he keeps, it, he keeps it all to himself. But we would say, isn't this worth celebrating, recording, writing down, boasting in? Shouldn't Paul, like, take this show on the road? Tell people about his trip to heaven. Write a book about it. Paul says, on behalf of a man like this, verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast. Paul agrees. This is a boast-worthy event. On behalf of someone like this, I will boast. But on my, my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Paul says, I'm willing to celebrate this, this revelation. But I'm not putting this on my spiritual resume. I'm not hanging my hat on this event. Instead, I would much rather boast in my weaknesses. I would much rather boast in my weaknesses because this strength of this revelation does not reflect the ongoing reality in which I live. Strength's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. The end of verse 6 sort of peels back the curtain for us. Instead of boasting about Paul's strengths of his experience, the strengths of his pedigree, Paul says he's only going to boast in weakness. Why? Look at verse 6. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast in the things you can't see or hear. I'm not going to boast in my past spiritual high points. I don't want to be assessed on my strengths. I only want to boast in and be evaluated on the things you can see and hear in me, which is my ever-present continual weakness and dependence on the Lord. Our strengths are not sufficient. Here's the thing. Paul says if he were to boast in it, he wouldn't be lying. He would be telling the truth. And so our strengths might be true. Our strengths might be accurate. They might actually be strengths. You might be a good evangelist. You might be good at praying. You might be a hospitable personality. You might really be gifted. But those giftings can serve as a false gospel that you put your hope in. You might have advanced training or experiences in Christian missions and ministry. But those things can be a crutch that you use to prop yourself up on and rely on. So let me ask you this morning, what are you putting on your spiritual resume? What high points from your past or your present are you taking comfort in? 
are you boasting in? Maybe you're like me and you reflect back to a time in your life when following Jesus was easy. And you were firing on all cylinders in your walk with the Lord. Maybe it's the time you spent as a missionary when evangelistic conversations were easy. Or maybe you're currently preparing to be sent out and you're, you have zeal and clarity for calling that others around you don't seem to have. Maybe it's a previous church that you attended where community and relationships flourished naturally. Maybe it's the good old days. Maybe it's something in the present, like your marriage or your children or your current walk with the Lord. What strengths are you boasting in? Because whatever they are, they're not sufficient. If we find ourselves taking comfort in our own strengths, the good things we've done, it's no wonder that we find ourselves wondering if our best days are behind us. It's no wonder we feel burdened with the feeling of failing to live up to the spiritual high points of our past or the superior expectations that we have for our futures. If that's you this morning, let me just tell you, you you don't have to carry that burden. That is unfair to carry. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He didn't will himself or walk himself or work himself there. Everything good that ever happened to you or me was poured out upon us through the abundant grace of our Lord. We didn't earn our spiritual Christian stripes. Our strengths are not sufficient because they do not reflect the ongoing reality in which we find ourselves. They might be true, but we continually live in the present. We continually live in the here and now. We continually live where people encounter the truest versions of us. Jars of clay, fragile, vulnerable. We aren't banking up impressive resume items. We're weak. It's okay. Our strengths are not sufficient, but God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. It's our second point this morning. God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. Here comes the fun part. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So, lots to unpack. <laughs> Verse 7 is complicated. Um, so we're gonna, we'll be quick, okay? We're going to make some observations. We'll reflect along the way. We're not, we could camp out here all day, but we're not. So, why a thorn in the flesh? This one's the easy answer. Why did Paul get a thorn? He says it twice. To keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So, Paul here does the homework for us. He connects the thorn to the revelation, makes that really easy. And at one point, he lets us know that he was probably tempted, like anyone would have been, to take some comfort, some boastful comfort in the revelation. And so, a thorn was given to him in the flesh. No one's immune to that feeling. We got any Louisville Cards fans in here? Right? So, we see it in sports. You, the huge upset win, 
right? You, get, you feel good, and then the next week, you can't put your shoes on the right feet, right? We all get that. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. pride comes before the fall. So Paul says to keep me from becoming conceited. Saw the revelation worth boasting in. I'm not going to boast in it. Thorn was given to me in the flesh. So the two experiences are connected together. Paul, interestingly enough, views the thorn as a gift. It was given to me to teach him or keep him from becoming conceited. In other words, God is using the thorn to bless Paul, to strengthen him. Next, the complicated one, the thorn. What is it? It's like manna from heaven. We don't really know. And it's probably a good thing. If we knew what the thorn was, we'd all, you know, like start comparing ourselves to Paul and we'd maybe distance ourselves and say, well, Paul's not like us or we're not like Paul. We don't have anything to learn here. So Paul keeps it a mystery. If you want to speculate, I've got ideas. But he doesn't tell us, but he does tell us a few things. So what do we know about the thorn? The the word thorn here just means sharp, pointy thing. Okay, we don't know how big it is. Um, We don't really know, you know, it's... It's sharp and it's pointy. So, that's what we know about the thorn. Paul says the thorn was given to him in the flesh. We kind of really don't know what that means either. So, we, but what we do know is that Paul is describing something that's actually happening to him. So, if the vision was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. I 100%, if I'm Paul, know that the thorn is in the flesh. I know, where it's, I know that this is actually happening to me, he says. Third thing we can note, point out is that this is Paul's affliction. So the uniqueness of the revelation and the uniqueness of the thorn are uniquely Paul's. That this is, I, I might be something or probably something that no one else is experiencing in his life. Um, that it's, it's unique to him. That God is, is using this thorn to serve the unique purpose of keeping Paul from being conceited because of the revelation. Fourth thing we can look at and say is that this is, this is chronic, ongoing harassment. It's not going away. It's a beatdown. The word in your Bible that, uh, where you see the word harass is really more accurately described as a continual beating or rapping of the fist, most likely to the face. So Paul's experiencing something like that with a sharp, pointy thorn, continually. It's likely, fifth observation, an apparent weakness that's known to the Corinthians. Paul seems, it's, he's connecting it to, to statements of visions and revelations, but also Paul's weakness and his continual bringing up of weakness and this sort of high point in the narrative seems to associate, this, is, this might be known to most people around him. That they, they know that he's weak in this particular way. They don't know it's a thorn in the flesh given from a messenger of Satan and they don't know it's connected to the revelation, but they're aware that this is an apparent weakness. And sixth thing we can observe is that since it's connected to the vision, it's not outside the realm of possibility that this affliction has been going on for some time, maybe even 14 years. So we don't know all the details about the thorn, but what we do know is pretty clear. Paul is experiencing 
ongoing affliction, not nagging headaches, not something that he can easily kind of self-medicate for and get on and think better thoughts, but actual affliction, not an annoyance. He's experiencing this to serve the unique purpose of God and keeping him from becoming conceited. But is the thorn from God? So Paul, at the same time, recognizes that the thorn is simultaneously serving the purposes of God and is a messenger from Satan sent to harass me. He seems to hold those, both of those two things together. He seemed to understand that the thing that's happening to him is not from God in the sense that God himself is doing the thing, but rather that God is permitting or allowing the agent from Satan to do this to Paul. So whatever it is that the agent of Satan, the messenger of Satan, is trying to accomplish in his torment, God is using to grow Paul and keep him from being conceited. There's nothing new in Scripture. So think back, we were in, we were in Genesis, and we, a couple of summers ago, talked about Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 50, 20 writes, As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, from God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Not new. So God is, in his grace, can take the plans and schemes of the enemy and use them to serve his purposes. Affliction and suffering in the hands of our gracious God are only and always the right and proper dose of the medicine we need. He's not the author of evil. He does not cause evil to come upon anyone. But in his supreme power and wisdom, and his authority, he's able to take even the most vicious attacks and use them for our benefit to serve his purposes, which are always and forever good. So Paul is in incredible pain for, for years and years, and he does what most of us would do in this situation. He prays, or more accurately, he pleads. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So, confession, I probably, my wife knows this, I probably have a weak tolerance for nagging pain and discomfort. But like once or twice a year, I'll wake up with like some stomach cramps in the middle of the night. And 2 Corinthians 12, 8 is like my life verse. <laughs> like, Lord, just take this away from me. Let me go back to sleep. So the amount of times in my adult life I've prayed like, Lord, my tummy hurts. Like, please help me. So one, like, don't, don't ever like not pray, Lord, my tummy hurts, please help. Right? Because that's childlike prayer. And that's, what we're, that's how we're supposed to pray. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But Paul is experiencing something much more dramatic than my midnight tummy aches. Okay? He says he pleaded three times, which doesn't necessarily mean more than, four, more than two, less than four. Three times he pleaded more accurately, is probably him saying, if, if he went to the third complete heaven of heavens, he pleaded completely. He pleaded completely. He hit his face on the floor. He poured out cries to God. He was completely spent in his praying. 
Lord, take this away from me. Now, in the same way that Paul's thorn was unique to him, imagine there's some thorns in your life that are unique to you, certainly in mine. And maybe it's to keep you from being conceited. I know the Lord uses suffering in my way, in that way for me. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, this thorn is serving as a continual and harassing reminder of your weakness, your shortcomings, your failures. And as you've walked with this thorn, you've likely had one or both of these thoughts. One, you think, I guess this is it. This thorn must be all that God has for me. This is my lot in life. There's no coming back from this one. My best days are behind me. I'm just thankful for how God was able to use me in the past. I'll do the best I can from here on out. God's done with me. It was fun while it lasted. And friends, as someone who said those words before, let me just encourage you, don't fall into the false to the trap of the false welcome of weakness. It's the false welcome of weakness. Why is it false? Because it's in reality it's self-sufficiency that is masquerading itself as weakness. It's completely self-reliant. Why? It says things like, I can't do anything and no one else can do anything for me. It's a refusal to believe that God's grace is sufficient for your weakness. It's essentially telling God, you're too far gone, too broken, too weak for his grace. And rather than climbing up into his lap for mercy, we sit in the corner and cross our arms and refuse his grace. Having the posture of weakness without the neediness that it requires, is really just self-sufficient strength that is hiding behind the mask of weakness. Don't fall into the trap of the false welcome of weakness. Second way you might respond, if you're like me, you respond to both, both ways, typically, but secondly, you think things like, this storm's really the worst, man. If God would just take this away, then I can really get on with what he's got for me. If he would take the thorn from me, I can move on to the bigger and better things. He's waiting for me to do it. God won't be able to do anything with me until this thorn's finally gone. I better get my act together and get this thing over with. And as someone who's said these things also, let me encourage you this morning, don't fall into the trap of failing to welcome weakness. Failing to welcome weakness. And that's really just self-sufficiency without the mask. I can take care of the thorn myself. I'm sufficient in my own strength once this darn thorn is gone. And that may be Paul's approach. I would be, if he's struggling with pride, that probably his, his, what his pleading might have entailed. We already know that it was given to him in order to keep that pride in check. And so if you're here this morning and you find yourself floating between these two realms of thinking, that's normal. It's called being a human. It's part of our common weakness. But thanks be to God 
that in his response to Paul and in his response to us, God provides a third way. Verse 9. We don't falsely welcome weakness. We don't fail to welcome weakness. In Christ, we can joyfully welcome weakness. Hear this good news. Three times I plead with the Lord about this, that it should be taken away from me, that it should leave me. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A third way. The thorn stays. You suffer. You're brought lower. But through God's grace, you experience the full display of his power working through your weakness. What a better way to live. Our strengths are not sufficient, but God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. So consider these points. Paul's strength. I think we got like half a table to go through. Yeah. Okay. So Paul's strength in his vision, just summarize. It's a memory from the past. He was snatched up quick and sudden. He went to the third heaven. He heard things he can't share. He will not boast in this so that no one may think more of me. Let's go to his weakness. It's continual and ongoing in the present. The thorn was given. Pleaded three times. He didn't hear things he can't share. God said to me. Did you catch that? I will not boast, but I will gladly boast in this. I don't want people to make think more of me, but I want the power of Christ to rest upon me. Our strengths are not sufficient. But in our weaknesses, we have something to say. We've got someone to point to. We've got grace that we can experience, that, uh, that other people can experience through us. Paul seems to have learned through this experience that it's precisely on the basis of his weakness that he actually has something to share with everyone. That he actually experiences the true power of God at work and on display in his life. Look at verse 9. We need to notice that it's God's grace that is sufficient. It's not earned or awarded to the most faithful and impressive Christian students. It is God's unmerited grace and mercy that's sufficient for all things. Even the most embarrassing and painful thorns. God responds to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what does that mean? It's what we've been, what we've been saying for the last month, right? That we are most like ourselves. We are most like ourselves, our true selves. The people we are made to be when we are most like Jesus. Most like Jesus who lived not on self-sufficient pride and a can-do attitude, but Jesus who, as Paul says in Philippians 2, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul goes on to say that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Or, as the author of Hebrews points out, Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It is in that weakness 
that emptiness, that humility in which the power of God is on full display. Not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Therefore, we joyfully welcome weakness. The thorns stay. They're still thorny. But in Christ, those thorns serve as a joyful reminder to us and everyone else of our desperate need of Christ. Not so that we can sit in the corner and cross our arms and refuse his comfort. Not so that we can patch ourselves up enough to get on with the real work. But that we joyfully welcome weakness, Paul says, for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Jesus was afflicted on our behalf. For our sake, he joyfully welcomed weaknesses and endured the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul writes, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so we joyfully welcome weakness for the sake of Christ, that he became weak in our place so that we could experience the full power of his strength in our weakness. We do it for his sake. That we might know him more. That we might share in his sufferings so that we also share in his resurrection we might participate in his death that his life might also be at work in us so we say with paul bring it on bring on more weaknesses more insults more hardships more persecutions more calamities so that we might welcome those things with the bold joy that is ours in jesus christ not because we're sufficient to handle them in our own power but that in order that the power of Christ might rest on us, that we might know him and the power of his resurrection, as Paul says, that we might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that through our weakness we might experience his power at work in us. When we are weak, then we are strong. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you find comfort in these words. Your strengths are not sufficient. Your strengths are not sufficient, but His grace is sufficient in your weaknesses. Your best days are not behind you. They're in front of you. You might feel weak and beat up right now. You have thorns. So do the rest of us, and so did Jesus. You're not sufficient, but He is And he has supplied all that you need in himself and his abiding presence. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope hope you leave here today knowing that at Antioch Church, we joyfully welcome you and whatever weaknesses you brought with you this morning. We're not a people who strive to look as if we have it all together. And we're also not a group of folks who sit around and feel sorry for ourselves. But with the joy of Christ, we boast in our weaknesses, knowing that we are most like us 
when we are most like Him. When we are weak, then we are strong. And if you're feeling weak this morning, I just encourage you, that's a good place to begin. But we also don't want you to leave today without knowing the Jesus Christ who gives us our strength and our weakness. Jesus Christ who was made weak on your behalf that you might have strength in your weakness. With that, we joyfully welcome weakness. Every week we come to this table as a continual reminder of the one who is made weak and broken on our behalf. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took a loaf of bread and blessed it. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. After blessing it, he passed it around. He said, take and drink. This is my blood, which is the new covenant spilled for you. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. At Antioch this morning, we want to proclaim this together, that in Christ, we joyfully welcome weakness, for when we are weak, then we are strong. If you're a believer, uh, we invite you to come forward, to take a piece of bread, to dip it in the juice, It'll be gluten-free over here. If you are not a believer, if you've not been baptized, we'd ask that you abstain from this table, that you would take Christ, who has made himself available to you this morning, so that in your weakness, you too can be strong. There'll be pastors in the back who will be able to talk with you, anyone who has any prayer concerns. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice with joy in the Son who was made weak so that we might be strong. We rejoice in the hardships and calamities that you have blessed us in. These things are not thorns meant to beat us up and cast us off. You have given them to us that we might experience your grace in our life, that we might throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus that we might experience his power at work in us, that we might say with the Apostle Paul that when we are weak, then we are strong. Father, this is a hard truth. And we are tempted to continue to be confused by it, but we pray that you would give us clarity and conviction to embrace our weakness for the sake of Christ, for the sake of him who is made weak on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would give us this conviction as a church and as a people. Pray that your word would bear much fruit in our lives. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray these things. Amen.